All right, let's go Exodus chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, the uh, text will be up on the screen uh, in a little while. If you don't own a Bible, let this be an invitation to get one. Uh, we value God's Word here. We believe that it has the ability to uh, convict people of sin and to breathe life into a weary soul, to call people to repentance. Uh, God is, uses it as the primary means by which he reveals himself to a world that, that he created and loves dearly and wants to make himself known to. Uh, and if you're kind of confused about what's going on here today, uh, don't worry, it'll make sense soon. My name is Stephen. Uh, I am one of the leaders here at Nashville Baptist Church. It's my privilege to get to welcome you. So if you're a visitor, uh, know that we're doing something a little different today, uh, but we do want to get to know you. We're going to cut out our welcome time uh, that we normally do where we go around and shake hands. Not that it's a bad thing, but it, we just don't have time for it today. Uh, but there are a couple of ways that you can uh, kind of help us get to know you well, find out ways to love and serve you well. Uh, number one is after our service time today, uh, out in that little foyer space or whatever you want to call it uh, out there, uh, we're going to have some coffee and some donuts and things like that. And uh, it's a time where I'd love to shake your hand, maybe hear a little bit of your story, uh, things like that. Also, uh, in your seat backs around you, you should find a little card that's uh, called a connection card. And on there is a little way that you can fill out some stuff and uh, whatever is the best way to contact you. We'd love to, to do that uh, just to get to know you, to find out ways that we can uh, be a church that loves you well and serves you well. And so uh, if you fill one of those out, uh, put it in the offering plate when the offering comes around later or give it to somebody who looks like they know what they're doing. Uh, there'll be somebody stationed out there at that desk uh, out in the foyer space. Uh, later, and that's a good person to give it to. Exodus chapter 15. Um, if you normally, I, I was asked to say this, if you normally send your kids to the nursery, you don't have to, but if you normally do that, do it now. All right, so we're going to talk for a little while, and so now's the better time to send them to the nursery instead of waiting until we're halfway through my sermon. All right, Exodus chapter 15. Um, we're in the middle of a sermon series called On the Same Page, and the idea is pretty simple. Uh, we are walking through, let's get the house lights up if we can. Uh, we're walking through uh, a series where we basically just define major important words in the life of the church, all right? Uh, words like gospel and scripture and worldview, and ironically today we're talking about worship and all those kinds of things. And so we're walking through and defining and kind of unfolding these major words, vocabulary words in the life of the church. And the reason for that is incredibly simple. We're all coming from different places in here, right? Uh, experientially, culturally, religiously, uh, just age range in here is kind of all over the place. Uh, you may have noticed that I sound funny when I talk. Uh, we're coming from different parts of the United States and sometimes different countries. And it's great and it's God glorifying. But sometimes when we throw out a word that's supposed to carry some weight and carry some meaning, we're not thinking the same thing. And so we're walking through all these different words, uh, calling the series On the Same Page. Right? It's just another way of saying it so that we're all kind of thinking the same thing when these major words are thrown out there, all right? And so even though we've been in this series since mid-January, we've talked about two words so far, gospel and scripture. And so some of you may be very excited to know this morning that from this point on, we're going to talk about a different word each week, yeah? Yeah, some of you are smiling, but you don't want to make, be audible about it because you know people are watching you. All right, so here's the thing. We've talked about gospel and we've talked about scripture and there's a bunch of stuff that we've unpacked in all those. But this morning we're going to talk about worship, all right? And so when I say worship, I want you to be thinking right response. Right response. So that video, huh? A little awkward at times. 
Some of you, some of you didn't know what to think about that loony character. I know some people like that. They live in the woods in southeast Texas, all right? You have, you have no idea how many times I've heard an old man say, that snake will kill you dead, all right? Now, so what do we often think about when we think of worship? We're normally thinking about music, right? Now, every good sermon about worship is going to pull out Romans 12, 1 and 2 and talk about how our life is a living sacrifice that's holy and pleasing to God. The Bible's very clear that worship is more of a lifestyle than it is a specific event. And, and I, I promise you that in, in the years to come, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that reality. But here's the truth. When I say worship, pretty much everybody in here is going to be thinking about all the little things that we do, music and tithing and praying and scripture and the proclamation of God's word. All the things that we do together when God's people gather together in one space, one room, on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or any other time of the week that we can squeeze in. or We just do together, right? That's worship. And yeah, it's the lifestyle thing, but it also has this more definite meaning of all the actions of a gathered church celebrating who God is and what God has done, right? When I say worship, I want you to be thinking right response. Exodus 15. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Exodus story, uh, like I said, we got a lot of different backgrounds, levels of church background in here. Here's how Exodus uh, 1 through 14 rolled out. God's people, the Israelites, have been enslaved in the land of Egypt for about 400 years. All right, so when you think of old, all right, so when you think of you know, history of the United States, we haven't made it that long. There are people identified as slaves for almost twice as long as that. So uh, their reality, their world is slavery under Egypt. God hears their cries. He finally raises somebody up to rescue them. We can talk about why he allowed 400 years to happen at another time, but he did. All right? He raises up a guy named Moses to rescue them out of Egypt. And Moses is not really the character that you would expect uh, to be the guy that is God's mouthpiece. He's a murderer. He is kind of a scaredy cat. He runs away from his responsibilities. Uh, he uh, confesses to God that he kind of has a speech impediment is the way the text kind of reads. And so being the guy to stand in front of Pharaoh and demand that he let his millions of slaves go free, Moses is not the guy probably most of us in this room are going with, right? Like if we got a vote on it, Moses is not making the cut, all right? But God raises up Moses, sends them to Pharaoh, demands that he let his people go in that nice little Charlton Heston kind of moment, all right? And what's Pharaoh's response? <laughs> no. <laughs> and the Bible says that it was the plan from before the foundation of the world that Pharaoh would say no because God was going to make a point. The Bible says that God hardened his heart. And then you get the plagues. Ten miraculous plague-level things that God does to basically dress down Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally relents, lets the Israelites go free, and they celebrate as they march out of Egypt, a million-plus strong. They are guided by God. 
The one who did the ten massive plagues. They are guided by God with a literal cloud of fire at night and a pillar of cloud during the day. Like they're marching through the desert following a giant fire pillar. Think God's with them? They get to the edge of the Red Sea, start to dip their toes in the water. Ooh, it's cold. And the Bible tells us that Pharaoh has this moment where he's like, what am I doing? Why would I? Why would I let my slaves go? The Bible says in that place that God hardened his heart again. He loads up his army on his fastest chariots and they go after him. The Israelites are pinned between the Red Sea and the mighty army of the mighty empire of Egypt racing down on them. For those of you who know the story, what does the Bible say that they do? It says they start to panic. Because, I guess, plagues and a pillar of fire didn't convince them. Right? Like, if anybody's got confidence of God and what he's going to do in their back pocket, shouldn't it be the Israelites in this moment? All right? So they start to freak out. They're like, hey, maybe we should have just died in Egypt. And did you bring us out here to suffer, Moses? And they start to, to rag on him. And, and God tells Moses, listen, calm down. Use your staff. And God causes the waters to separate. And they walk through a million strong on a dry seabed. And in Exodus 14... God has been holding off the Egyptian army. Apparently, God got between the Israelites and Egypt with this pillar of cloud, held them off for however it takes for a million plus people to walk through an ocean bed. Like, process through that for a second. We're not talking about a five-minute deal, right? I can't get y'all organized to do something in 20 minutes. All right? So this, so this group of people walk through on dry ground. God's holding them off with a pillar of cloud. And then once they get safely through, God lets them go. And because Pharaoh's too dumb to know any better, he goes, let's go get them, guys. And they race into the Red Sea. And for those of you who know the story, what happens? God causes the waters to violently smash against them. You ever wonder where the mighty Egyptian empire went? God crushed them, literally. Literally. The Bible says that he drowned every one of them. Now, if you are an Israelite, and you have experienced the plagues in Egypt, you experienced the celebration as you marched out of that area. You were literally guided by God by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. You get to the Red Sea, watch it miraculously open up for you to walk through safely and then crush your enemies the second you're on the other side. How do you respond? Exodus chapter 15. You ready? Then Moses 
And the people of Israel, what? Sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths, excuse me, like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury, and it consumes them like stubble. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. Verse 10, you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. Verse uh, verse 13, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by, to the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and you will plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and Ever. So the right response of Moses and the Israelites is to what? They sing. They sing. Moses doesn't go intellectual in this moment. Like he's the giver of the law, right? He's the guy that the Israelites are going to identify forever as the lawgiver. The one who, who understands God's statutes and his rules and his demands and passes them on to him. Moses doesn't go intellectual. He doesn't write a dissertation. He doesn't open up a bottle of wine and make a toast. He didn't do that. He didn't make a speech. Although I... I like to think sometimes he sermonized it a little bit. What does he do? He sings. The gut reaction of of Moses and the Israelites to witnessing what they witnessed of literally being rescued out of Egypt by God out of slavery, being brought along the desert, to being rescued out of the hands of the Egyptian army, of watching that Egyptian army be crushed in front of them as to go, our God is amazing, let's sing about him. 
to Moses and the Israelites. A song was the only thing appropriate in that moment. It was the only thing appropriate. See, a lot of people view music and prayer and giving and tithing and all the different things that we do in a worship service. They view that as this thing that prepares the way for the important stuff in the sermon. We've, we spent a long time the last couple of weeks talking about how Scripture is of ultimate importance to us, and that's right and that's true, but that doesn't mean for a second that the other things are not important. And so we structure our service in a way that puts the proclamation of God's Word at the top of that pedestal, but you know what? Sometimes it may be good for our hearts to flip things around a little bit. To declare the mighty truths of what God has done and who our God is and then spend the rest of our time celebrating that. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to proclaim and then we're going to sing. Music is this incredibly wonderful gift from God, right? I mean, does anybody not like music? Anybody going, I hate that stuff. It's a waste of time. Everybody in here has a favorite song, right? If you don't, you're just the guy who hasn't really thought about it. But you have a favorite song, all right? I have like 20 favorite songs. They kind of come and go based on seasons of my life. You can talk to Katie. My favorite song right now is, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the name. I wrote it down. All right, here we go. Ah, oh, see? It's, it's Here We Go by Drew Holcomb and the Neighbors. You ever heard of that band? You should. All right, here's the thing. The song is actually pretty simple. Um, it talks about the ups and downs of life. It talks about needing a friend. It talks about needing somebody who can share some of your sorrows sometimes. And it does it in a pretty simple way, but it does it in this really, really fun way. Like there's, there's this lilt to the melody that's just kind of catchy. You know songs like that, right? You have a favorite song that's just like that, all right? Yeah, music has this incredibly, I'll call it spiritual way of connecting with something deep inside of you that mere words never could, right? And I'm willing to bet that if, if I gave you the mic, and I'm not, I'm willing to bet that if I gave you the mic and we lined up single file and everybody marched through and said, my favorite song is this because of this, every single one of you would talk about something to the tune of, Man, it says this simple thing in a way that I can't, right? Yeah. Music is this incredible gift from an incredibly good gift giver. It says, hey, you got something in you that needs to be expressed deeper than just unpacking the details. Whether it's the songwriting wordsmith that I love, the Ray LaMontagne's of the world, Woo. or it's the catchy instrumentalist. Music does this incredibly beautiful thing that mere words never could. And it, you actually see that reality over and over and over again in the scriptures, especially in the writings of Paul. Like, have you ever, you ever thought about Paul as the songwriter? The answer is no. Paul's definitely the analytical guy, and he'll punch you if you think otherwise. <laughs> when you meet him in heaven, just watch. <laughs> but several times in Paul's letters, like in Romans 11 or, or Colossians 1, 
Paul is walking through these massive truths about who God is. He's unpacking our God is this and our God is that and he's done this, that, and the other. And he calls a time out and he sings for a second. Seriously. Go read Romans 11. Incredibly deep theological truth that Paul is unpacking and doesn't even make sense to me sometimes because it's deeper than my head can really wrap around. And then he, he like finishes talking about that and he goes, wait a second, I gotta celebrate. And he stops and sings a song for a moment. We're gonna read that text a little bit later in our worship time. The psalm writer, Psalm 100, join me there. In Psalm 100... The psalm writer kind of does the same thing. They've been walking through a series of psalms, talking about the bigness of God. Look what he says in Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with what? With gladness. Come into his presence with what? Listen, that's not solemn. That's not stern-faced, right? He says, no, enter his courts with thanksgiving. Look at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people in the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with what? Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Is this asking God to do something? No. Is it wrong to ask God to do something? Not for a second, but more often than not, what you see of celebration of God in the scriptures has nothing to do with, God, would you give? God, would you give? I almost fell over. God, would you give? No, it's, see, it's a response of who God is and what he has done. Verse 5, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. The psalm writer in Psalm 100 Everything in him has to stop and declare for a moment that our God is good. He has been faithful to us. And he's not, he's not saying anything that everybody reading or singing his psalm wouldn't have been, like immediately gotten. They all, if you're paying attention, you know that to be true. Maybe you're not paying attention. The songwriter doesn't tap into anything that, that everybody in the room is going, I don't know if that's correct. No, they respond, yes, he is good. Yes, he is faithful. Yes, he has guided us like a wonderful shepherd. The psalm writer says that our God is glorious and that he continually blesses us in ways that we do not deserve and that he is worthy of our praise. You think about God in terms of being worthy of what you give him? We're not exactly worthy of giving it, but he is worthy of everything we can. When I say 
worship. I want you to be thinking right response. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. I'm shutting it down early so we can sing. But maybe you're here today and you don't know this God that we're talking about. The idea of singing and rejoicing and celebrating and proclaiming the wonders and the beauties of a God that you don't know is foreign to you. It would be hard to to sing and to celebrate and proclaim if you don't know Him, right? So maybe you're here today and for the first time you want to meet Him. We can do something about that. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and we'll have some people down here, myself included, that you can come and talk to and figure out what that looks like. It involves repenting of your sin and coming to Him as Lord. It's as simple as I can put it. But if you want to talk, I'll be down here. For the rest of us, for the rest of us, if you're here today and you've, you've seen worship as something that sets the table for everything else, this time filler for everything else, oh, repent today. Repent today. Let us, let us sing and celebrate and proclaim and exalt the wonders of our God. Not just what he's done, but who he is. He is worthy of our praise before he's done a thing for us. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and let everything else we do this morning be a right response to who our God is and what our God has done. Father God, you are good. You are lovely. You are righteous. You are true. You are beautiful. You are faithful. You are wonderful. You are the good giver and the good caretaker. You are infinitely and eternally wonder, worthy of our praise. We can never exhaust what you deserve. But you are also patient with us. And you take our humble attempt, whether it lacks talent when it's sometimes stained by sin, when we lack direction or, in, or creativity, you are the good father who enjoys receiving gifts from your children. So may every word we sing, may every thing that we give, may the prayers that we pray be pleasing to you. Not because we want to be a church with the best music program. Because you are good and you deserve it. So be with us in this time. Help us to see your goodness so that we may celebrate your goodness. And if anyone needs to to respond to something this morning, would you give them the courage to walk in that? So in your name we pray. Amen.